As you're turning there, uh, if you listen at all to Christian radio, you would have heard a song titled Words by an artist named Hawk Nelson. He begins a song like this. They've made me feel like a prisoner. They've made me feel set free. They've made me feel like a criminal. Made me feel like a king. They've lifted my heart to places I've never been, and they've dragged me down back to where I began. Words can build you up. Words can break you down, start a fire in your heart, or put it out. Let my words be life. Let my words be truth. I don't want to say a word unless it points the world back to you. Words, they possess great power, don't they? This morning, we wrap up our three-week series that we've titled David and, where we've been looking at some of the other characters in the story of David. And this morning, we get to see an encounter that demonstrates the tremendous power of words. So we look this morning at the story of David and Abigail. David and Abigail. Before we dive in, allow me to to pray, please. Lord God, this is your scripture. This is your word. It is God-breathed to us, and we want to we hear from you this morning. We ask that the, the voice that all of us would hear would be yours. May we listen well to your words. In Jesus' name, amen. So David and Abigail. And this morning, we're going to let the story tell the story. So we'll start in verse 1. It says, now Samuel died, and all Israel gathered for his funeral. They buried him at his house in Ramah. That's verse 1. Initially, when I started studying this chapter, I didn't think that verse was terribly important. But the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that verse probably plays a role in David's reaction later in this chapter. You see, David had been super close to Samuel. David had trusted him. Samuel had been God's mouthpiece to Israel, to David, and to King Saul. And by Samuel's death, that pretty much closed the door on any potential reconciliation between King Saul and David. Because Samuel was still the the one person who sometimes King Saul would listen to. But with his death, there was no more chance of reconciliation. He was not going to be talked out of pursuing David. And maybe David knew this. Maybe this created some additional stress in his life, which would play out in his reaction later. Or maybe the simple fact of losing a friend, losing a mentor, and the grief work that comes along with it being so hard, maybe that, combined with David living in a constant state of unrest and unsettled, maybe this all plays into his reaction. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's continue with the story. Verse 2 and 3. Said then David moved down to the wilderness of Maon. There was a wealthy man there from Maon who owned property near the town of Carmel. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it was sheep shearing time. This man's name was Nabal, and his wife, Abigail, was sensible and beautiful. But Nabal, a descendant of Caleb, was crude. And mean in all of his dealings. This chapter, as we continue, you'll see, is really set out like a play that we get to sit back and watch. And it starts off by showing us a couple of the characters. First, 
Nabal, a rich man. We know he was rich because he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. And we also learn that he was a Calebite, a descendant of Caleb. Now, if you remember, Caleb was one of the 12 spies that got sent into the promised land as the Israelites had left Egypt. 12 spies that got sent in to scout things out and then come back and report to the Israelites before they crossed the Jordan. Well, 10 of the spies came back and said, we, we can't go. I mean, those guys are big. They've got fortified cities. There's no way they'll demolish us. Well, two of the spies said, no, 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 no. Let's trust God. If God says go, he's going he's to give us this land. Those spies were Joshua and Caleb. So obviously people of character, people of deep trust. What's well, interesting that Nabal is specifically said to be a Calebite because he doesn't exhibit any of the character traits that Caleb had. In fact, you can tell by his description that he's almost the opposite. My translation says he is crude and mean in all of his dealings. Some of yours might say he was harsh. He was badly behaved. He was evil. And if you're reading from the King James, it says he was churlish. You got that? He was churlish, which means he was a bear of a man, harsh, rude, and brutal. That's the first character. Now, on the complete opposite end of the spectrum was his wife, Abigail. In my translation, it says she is a sensible and beautiful woman. Sensible could also be translated as discerning, intelligent, wise, a woman of good understanding. So she had brains, a lot of them, and on top of that, she was beautiful. An instant winner. A a woman fit for a king, and yet she was married to Nabal. We can assume it was an arranged marriage and one that she probably wasn't too happy in and one that she probably wasn't given too much freedom in. Now we continue with the story and we see the next set of characters, David and his men. David, hearing that Nabal was shearing sheep, sent a small delegation, 10 men, to ask Nabal for some food. Verses 4 through 9. When David heard that Nabal was shearing his sheep, he sent 10 of his young men to Carmel with this message for Nabal. Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. I am told that it's sheep shearing time. While your shepherds stayed among us near Carmel, we never harmed them, and nothing was ever stolen from them. Ask your own men, and and they will tell you this is true. So would you be kind to us, since we have come at this time of celebration? Please share any provisions you might have on hand with us and with your son, David, with your friend, David. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name, and they waited for a reply. Here's where a little historical context help us understand the story. See, David's men had been camped out in the hills, the hills near, near Carmel, still running from Saul. And in that day and age, a man like Nabal, a rich man, he himself wouldn't have gone out into the hills with his sheep. He would have sent shepherds, which the story tells us he did. It was not uncommon back then for a group of wandering men like David's to to create this unwritten pact with a group of shepherds like Nabal's. You see, a group like David's could have easily stolen, harassed, raided the shepherds, taken their sheep. But as you can see in the story, they didn't. They created this unwritten pact, a a pact to protect the shepherds and the sheep. And here's where the unwritten part of it comes in. You'll notice that three times already, so you know it's important, the text says it was sheep shearing time. 
So in sheep shearing time, that was a time of celebration, a time of party, a time to give thanks for the bounty of the flock, which was so bountiful because they were protected and guarded by these men in the hills. So the unwritten pact was, if we protect you and your sheep, you give us some of your food. This is what David was reminding Nabal of in the most gracious of words, right? Peace and prosperity to you, your family, and everything you own. Hey, don't forget that while your men were with us, we protected them. We didn't take anything from them. We didn't harm them. What about that unwritten pact that we didn't sign, Nabal? There's there's nothing pretentious here. Nothing out of the ordinary. In fact, in that culture, David's request would have almost always been met with much food given. I mean, after all, a big reason for the success success of the flock was the people who had guarded the sheep. You notice also David, at the end of verse 8, calls himself Nabal's son. He's putting himself in a lower position than Nabal. So every part of this request was made in a very culturally appropriate way. Remember, words have power. Peace and prosperity to you. These were David's words. And in the words of the song I quoted to start the sermon, David's David's words could have made Nabal feel like a king, could have made him feel lifted up, could have made him feel set free to celebrate. But remember what kind of man Nabal is. Harsh, rude, churlish. Nabal's Response. Nabal's words to David's men come in the next two verses, verse 10 and 11. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sneered to the young men. Who does the son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my sharers and give it to a band of outlaws who have come from who knows where? Hmm. Not really the expected response. Not really the culturally normative response. And not a response to the gracious request from David. Peace and prosperity. But did we expect anything different from this man after his description? You know, it's hard to say. Something that was a little bit surprising to me. This guy seems very self-focused, and yet he seems to have at least a minimal understanding of what's going on outside of his household. Because he seems to know that David was a son of Jesse. He seems to know that David was on the run from Saul. Now, it doesn't say that in here, but it does say there are lots of servants who run from their masters. So he's probably alluding to that. Now, you can also assume that in, in Nabal calling David's men a band of outlaws, that he is taking sides with Saul. So he's kind of drawing that line in the sand of saying, well, there's a skirmish going on between David and Saul, and I'm going to pick Saul, and who is this guy anyways? So Nabal's words were insults thrown, sides being taken, and evidence of a very self-focused attitude. Interesting, because in the Hebrew, the word Nabal means fool. And Nabal's actually living into the meaning of that name. Uh, Abigail will later explain that a little bit more. Who is this fellow David? Nabal sarcastically asked. Words have power. So how did David respond to Nabal? Let's see, verse 12 and 13. 
So David's young men returned and told him what Nabal had said. Get your swords, was David's reply, as he strapped on his own. Then 400 men started off with David, and 200 remained behind to guard their equipment. If you jump down to verse 21, you get to see a little bit of what was going on inside David's mind. That verse, he says, a lot of good it did to help this fellow. We protected his flocks in the wilderness, and nothing he owned was ever lost or stolen. But he has repaid me evil for good. May God strike me and kill me if even one man of his household is still alive tomorrow morning. So how did David respond? Strap on your swords, men. Let's go. 400 of you, two-thirds of you. That's, that's two-thirds, okay? We'll take two-thirds. We're going to go. We're going to kick some tail. Nobody treats me like that. Yeah, nobody treats the future king like that. Not, I'm going to take things into my own hands. Let's ride. Now, when he said he's going to kill all the men in Nabal's household, that probably means everybody. Men, women, children. The song I quoted earlier says, words can make you feel like a criminal, can make you feel dragged down to where you began. They can build you up, break you down. They can start a fire in your heart. Nabal's words definitely started a fire in David's heart. And perhaps David's response was the reason that his son would later write this proverb, Proverb 26, 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Should David's response surprise us? I mean, if we look at his response just based out of 1 Samuel 25, probably not. I mean, he's the next anointed king. No trash-talking, evil, churlish man should be allowed to get away with that. It seems a little natural when you're insulted for your blood to boil, doesn't it, men? Maybe I'm the only one that gets mad when I'm insulted. It seems a little natural for your blood to boil when insulted. Now, maybe we should not be surprised by David's response. But maybe we should be. Because this story is actually sandwiched in between two other stories where he shows tremendous patience where he does not let his temper get away from him. Last week, we looked at um, David fully trusting God, looking at how big God was when he faced Goliath. In chapter 24, if we read that chapter, we'd see David had this prime opportunity to kill Saul. Saul had gone into a cave to go to the bathroom. David and all his men were in the back of that cave. David could have taken matters into his own hands right there, but he didn't. Chapter 24, verse 12 and 13. May the Lord judge between us, David called out to Saul. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for whatever you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds. So you can be sure that I will not harm you. Now, if you jump to the next chapter, chapter 26, you see David has another opportunity to kill King Saul. David and another man had snuck into his camp. They had got all the way right to where King Saul was sleeping and they were standing over him and the, the man with him, Abishi, was saying, kill him, kill him, and David won't. David says this in 26, 9, 10, and 11. He says, no, don't kill him, for who can remain innocent after attacking the Lord's anointed one? Surely the Lord will strike Saul down someday or he will die of old age or in battle. The Lord forbid that I should kill the one he has anointed. 
Saul was a guy who had insulted David numerous times. He had treated him poorly. He had chased him all over the countryside. He gave him a daughter in marriage and then took that daughter and gave it to another man. Gave her to another man. You would think that of all the times David had an opportunity to get a little revenge, he would have taken it. But he didn't. He displayed tremendous patience, long-suffering. So maybe our response, David's response today should surprise us. Maybe David didn't know that his son would later write a proverb that says, do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be just like him. We don't know all the ins and outs of why David had a quick reaction in our story. Maybe he was at the end of the rope emotionally from all the running, all the pursuit of King Saul. Maybe he didn't know how to deal with the grief work of losing Samuel. Maybe he just simply had a man moment where he got insulted and thus got mad. We don't know for sure why he reacted that way, but I think most of us would be like, hey, man, that's okay. He got mad. I think most of the men in here, if we were in David's sandals, would have responded the same way. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying that's probably how we would have responded. Now, we're talking about the power of words and seeing that power played out in the story of David and Abigail. And now we get to her part. We know what's going on in the story. Sheep sharing is happening. David made a request to Nabal for food. Nabal insulted him. David got his, his men, got his swords, and we start riding towards the Nabal compound to take matters into his own hands. And this is where we pick up our story. Verse 14. Meanwhile, one of Nabal's servants went to Abigail and told her, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, but he screamed insults at them. These men have been very good to us, and we never suffered any harm from them. Nothing was stolen from us the whole time they were with us. In fact, day and night, they were like a wall of protection to us and to the sheep. You need to know this and to figure out what to do, for, for there is going to be trouble for our master and his whole family. He's so ill-tempered that no one can even talk to him. I mean, even Nabal's servants realized the reputation he had in the neighborhood. A not-so-pleasant reputation. So now we get to see what Abigail did. Verse 18 says, She wasted no time. She quickly gathered 200 loaves of bread, two wineskins full of wine, five sheep that had been slaughtered, nearly a bushel of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 fig cakes. She packed them on a donkey and said to her servants, Go on ahead, and I will follow you shortly. But she didn't tell her husband Nabal what she was doing. As she was riding her donkey into the mountain ravine, she saw David and his men coming towards her. You got the picture in your mind? You're watching the play unfold? Abigail, this woman of wisdom, this woman of beauty, having heard of her husband's foolishness, does what most women in the culture would never have done. She says, I'm going to fix this, or at least I'm going to do the best I can. She knew that if David made it all the way to the compound, she and everybody else there was going to be dead. So watch what she does, and watch what she says. There's tremendous wisdom, tremendous power in her words as the story progresses. We jump down to verse 23, and we'll read 23 to 31. It says, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed low before him. She fell at his feet and said, 
I accept all the blame in this matter, my Lord. Please listen to what I have to say. I know Nabal is a wicked and ill-tempered man. Please don't pay any attention to him. He is a fool, just as his name suggests. But I never even saw the young men you sent. Verse 26. Now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands, let all your enemies and those who try to harm you be as cursed as Nabal is. And here's a present that I, your servant, have brought to you and your young men. Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles. And you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. Verse 29. Even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God, secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. When the Lord has done all this, all that he has promised and has made you leader of Israel, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Then your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. And when the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. Words have power. And we're going to look at Abigail's words and see the genius that she had in them. It says she's a wise woman, right? Proverbs 24.7 says wisdom is too lofty for fools. She had it. Nabal didn't. Proverbs 4, verse 7, the beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Abigail's reaction, her response, her words to David were filled with a wisdom and insight that everyone should learn from. And her response showed wisdom on many different levels. Let's let's look at many of those. First thing she did, upon report from the servants of her husband being a jerk, again, Abigail gathered up all the food. She, she, she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fulfill David's initial request. It's a great tactic, isn't it? Somebody asked for something, give it to him. Now, not only did she prepare what David had originally asked for, she exhibited some tremendous insight as to how to approach an angry man. You approach an angry man with food. Amen. That's tremendous insight. Now, all joking aside, I wonder if how the food arrived reminded David of any previous stories in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob stole the blessing from from the dad, and Esau got really mad. So when dad died, he was going to kill Jacob, and Jacob had to go live with his uncle Laban in a different land. And he he worked for 20 years to get two wives, and 20 years later, he says, I want to go back to my homeland, and I hope that Esau is not still mad. So he starts going back, and he hears that Esau is coming towards him with how many men? 400. So Jacob sends food in front of him. When Abigail hears that David is coming to her house with how many men? 400. She sends food ahead of her. So verse 19 says, she tells her servants, you go on ahead and I'll follow you shortly. In Jacob and Esau, the story ended in peace. I wonder if Abigail was pointing back to that story, hoping that David would remember it. More insight. Before Abigail even said a word 
she approached and she bowed. This was a sign of submission. It was a sign of respect. It was opposite of whatever verbal sign that Nabal had given David. There's wisdom in the way you approach physically. When Abigail does begin to talk, multiple times she addresses David as my Lord. And she addresses herself as your servant. In fact, you look at verses 24 through 31. All 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31 of those. You're either going to see my Lord or your servant in each one of those. Now, I don't know if she did this out of fear or out of pure genius. Whatever it was, maybe it was a little of both. She is putting herself, the potential matriarch of the region, the wife of an extremely wealthy man in the region, she's putting her place in a place of submission to David, this wandering outlaw. Her wisdom and discernment continue to show as she speaks to David, laying out her plea. It's interesting because in verse 24 and 25, she talks about her husband. First, she acknowledges his foolishness. She says, this is, that's what his name means. That's what he's acting like. So, uh, conflict resolution, speak what the other person already knows. Affirm what they're angry about. My husband's an idiot. I know that, you know that, let's just go from here. Next, she just, she just, it's crazy. She points David back to the Lord. Verse 26. It says, now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord lives, and you yourself live, since the Lord has kept you from murdering and taking vengeance into your own hands. She says, this is the Lord's doing. He's kept you from vengeance. She must know of David's respect for the Lord. She must know that he desires more than anything to please the Lord. And she's going to come back to that same pointing upward. Now, if you remember, I told you that when Nabal responded, it showed at least minimal insight as to what was going on around him. Abigail's response shows an intimate awareness of what was going on in the world around her, especially in the life of David. Verse 28, she says, Please forgive me if I have offended you in any way. The Lord will surely reward you with a lasting dynasty, for you are fighting the Lord's battles, and you have not done wrong throughout your entire life. It seems that Abigail might know something about Solomon already anointing David the next king. Thus, she drops the term a lasting dynasty. It seems that she would know David's purpose in going out and fighting. He wasn't fighting for Saul. He was fighting for the Lord. She says, you're fighting the Lord's battles. It seems that she knows something of David's character, saying, you have done no wrong your entire life. And she continues in verse 29, even when you are chased by those who seek to kill you, it seems she knows there's some wrongful pursuit going on. She says, your life is safe in the care of the Lord your God. There she is again, pointing back to God. Secure in his treasure pouch. But the lives of your enemies will disappear like stones shot from a sling. Interesting little rabbit trail. I wonder if she said that because she knew what David had done to Goliath. This proves that she knew what was going on. 
Now, moving on to verse 30, it again draws back to David's future kingship and points right back to God. She says, when the Lord has done all that he has promised and made you the leader of Israel. And then the next verse, interesting tactic here. She uses the exact same tactic that Jonathan used when he was talking to his dad, King Saul, to prevent him from attacking David. Verse 31, don't let this be a blemish on your record. Don't let this be a, a blemish that you hold on your conscience so your conscience won't have to bear the staggering burden of needless bloodshed and vengeance. Jonathan had told that to King Saul because it was not good for anybody, let alone a king, to have innocent blood on their hands. So Abigail says, don't, don't do that. And then she says at the end of verse 31, when the Lord has done these things for you. Again, pointing back to God. When the Lord has done these great things for you, please remember me, your servant. The last part of the song that I started the service with said, let my words be life, let my words be truth. I don't want to say a word unless it points the world back to you. Now every, every word that Abigail uttered ultimately pointed back to God, didn't it? And at the end of it, Abigail is bold enough to have an innocent but a bold request. Remember me, she said. Remember me. How many of you have ever heard of the lady named Maggie Kuhn? Anybody? Okay, she lived 1905 to 1995, and she was central in establishing a group called the Gray Panthers. The Gray Panthers, this is a group that fought for the dignity and rights of the elderly. She once said, speak your mind, even if your voice shakes. Speak your mind, even if your voice shakes. I can't help but think that Abigail, in our story, that her voice must have shook a few times while she was talking. But she spoke her mind the entire time, and in speaking in the way that she did, she demonstrated wisdom insight, discernment, and knowledge that we are so, so gifted to be able to witness. Now you can see in her words how wise they were as we continue our story in two ways. The first, her words did stop David from attacking. And the second is that when David responded to her, he essentially just repeated back what she had said to him. Verses 32 through 35. David replied to Abigail, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you to meet me today. Thank God for your good sense. Bless you for keeping me from murder and from carrying out vengeance with my own hands. For I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, who has kept me from hurting you, that if you had not hurried out to meet me, not one of Nabal's men would still be alive tomorrow. Then David accepted her present and told her, Return home. In peace, I have heard what you said. We will not kill your husband. Did you hear the echoes of her words to him? The Lord has sent you to me. I won't have innocent blood, murder on my hands. The Lord stopped this massacre. Go, go in peace. I think that it was because Abigail acted in wisdom in the middle of this potentially fatal and chaotic episode that David would later be able to write in Psalm 17. He said this, With regards to the works of man, by the words of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet 
have not slipped. Miss Marlene, I think you're right is here. Do you want to help Miss Marlene out? Let's listen to the rest of the story. Verse 36 to 38. When Abigail arrived home, she found that Nabal was throwing a big party and he was celebrating like a king. He was very drunk, so she didn't tell him anything about her meeting with David until the dawn of the next day. In the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him what had happened. As a result, his heart failed him. And he lay paralyzed on his bed like a stone. About ten days later, he died. Abigail went home. Nabal was living into the foolishness of his name, partying and drinking. And the next day, she told him what she did. And God took the revenge that David had initially set out to take on his own. Nabal had some sort of health episode. Some people think a heart attack. Some people think a stroke. Either way, God took things into his own hands. And 10 days later, Nabal died. The story finishes like this in verse 39 to the end. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Praise the Lord who has avenged the insult I received from Nabal and has kept me from doing it myself. Nabal has received the punishment for his sin. Then David sent messengers to Abigail to ask her to become his wife. When the messengers arrived at Carmel, they told Abigail, David has sent us to take you back to marry him. And she bowed low to the ground and responded, I, your servant, would be happy to marry David. I would even be willing to become a slave, washing the feet of his servants. Quickly getting ready, she took along five of her servants and attendants, mounted her donkey, and went with David's messengers. And so she became his wife. David also married Ahinoam from Jezreel, making, them both, making both of them his wives. And Saul, meanwhile, had given his daughter Michael, David's wife, to a man from Galim named Palti, son of Laish. I told you as I started my sermon when we were talking about uh, Abigail, her description sounded, sounded like she was an instant winner, uh, a wife fit for a king. She got that. She got that. And talk about a power couple. I mean, David and Abigail. David was good-looking, wise, a man after God's own heart. Abigail was discerning and wise and beautiful. And I wonder how many of his future decisions had her fingerprints on them. I just wonder. David and Abigail. So what do we do with this? I think the answer is easy. We simply remember that words have power. Words have power. In the next couple of days, there's going to be some things that take place that will cause a lot of people to talk. There'll be some dialogue. There'll be some debate. There'll be some arguing. Who do you want to look like in the next couple of days? Nabal? David? Or Abigail? That's the most immediate take home. In the next couple of months, there's the holidays. Man, remember that your words have power. Holidays can be stressful for everybody. So make sure you watch what you say. Again, in the holiday season, who do you want to look like? Nabal, David, or Abigail? In the message translation, Proverbs 18, 21 says, Words kill. Words give life. They are either poison or fruit. You choose. I encourage you, make your words like Abigail's. 
full of wisdom, discernment, and continually pointing back to God. Words have power. It's a simple application, but one, if we take it seriously, will have deep and profound impact. Let's pray. God, I thank you for today's story. I thank you that in a lot of very real ways, we could place ourselves in that story and see ourselves reacting in the ways the different characters reacted. Lord, we recognize that ultimately true wisdom and knowledge and discernment comes from you. And we ask you for that. We ask you, Lord, for a discerning heart as we go about the next couple of days and the next couple of months. We ask that you would help us keep a guard on our tongue. Help us as we respond to things. Respond out of the ways that Abigail responded in wisdom and discernment and continually pointing people back to you. This we pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.